Hey, good evening. Hi. Do people have the chant? please you should be good to share and i'm making you host now oh you're yeah you did that last time without hosting so now you all have the chat i keep forgetting to show that anyway here we go Order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri. Please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and the two supreme ones who beautify our world, you are their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude, Long Chenpo, who perfected some star in Nirvana in the state of Dharmakaya. Trimate was their stainless light at your feet I pray, grant your blessings that I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. So tonight we continue our progression through the uh, tenant systems of the different schools. If you took a peek ahead, um, you may have noticed that starting next week, we shift to going through the paths. 
So it won't be quite as much fun as all this arcane stuff, but it, it will be probably better fun. So bad. <laughs> then I would do the culmination of the tenant systems uh, prevalent at that time and in uh, Longchenpa's view, which is the Prasangika Madhyamaka. And um, when we go through this, we should be careful to not understand Prasangika Madhyamaka as being dismissive, completely dismissive, uh, as dismissive as it might sound like it is of all the other systems because to some extent one has to go through the other systems in order to come to the point of the exhaustion of mental elaboration or conceptual elaborations. And otherwise, um, one, one instead produces a sort of state of nihilism, a nihilistic state of just non-thought. The, um, the wrong path of the evil one, Mahayana Washian. <laughs> I'm kidding, but he, he's the, the Chinese guy in the debate between uh, Kamala Sheila and uh, the Chinese presentation of, of the path in the famous debate at Samya. Anyway, so um, just to review briefly, we have the Shravakayana, which focuses on uh, there being a genuine and uh, non-genuine types of phenomena. Um, non-genuine phenomena are phenomena such that when you break them into parts, then they no longer uh, appear or generate the appearance or the knowledge of that former object to the mind perceiving them. Such things are completely false, like water and vases, the genuinely existent are other than that. The, the genuinely existent phenomena are um, subtle particles of matter and uh, infinitesimal moments of time or instantaneous moments of time that uh, cannot be broken down or mentally dissected into something else. And then uh, the, the Chittamacha view was that um, the proposition of partless particles makes uh, sort of makes some sense in some ways, answers some quandaries about the nature of reality, but it sets up an illogical solution. Particles that have no sides, no uh, no dimension. How can they ever accumulate and come together and form a, a uh, substantial mass? And so all, all solutions of that type uh, begin to fall apart and we experience the dreamlike nature of reality. Uh, a sort of experience of, of what appears as not being logical, but yet appearing. Undeniable in that it appears, but not having a um, substantial 
separate existence apart from our perception of them. So we, we have this notion of there being uh, mind only and not no external, no phenomena separate from the perception of them. And uh, then we had the Svatantrika system, which is um, uh, labels or, or understands or views all uh, appearances as being false because they they have that quality as in the Chittamatra stage of uh, not having a logical basis. And uh, since it doesn't really do anything to say, oh, they're just all mind, uh, really they must be illusory. There's no other way to understand phenomena that appear without being real, without being truly existent. And uh, that actually there's nothing that can be proven to exist. Everything is like space. Even the observer is not real because its object is not real. How can there be a real observer if there's not a real observation taking place? And uh, they come to this logical conclusion that there must be some reality that's beyond the illusion, illusory nature of appearances and uh, observation. So... Uh, that which is free from all observers and observed as actual genuine truth. We make it to the Prasangika who say that which is imagined by mind is the completely false truth. It is expressed following worldly customs. So instead of completely dismissing appearances, although they acknowledge that they're completely false, uh, they are not true to what they appear to be. Phenomena are not as they appear. Yet, um, we don't have to dismiss them. We don't have to, we don't have to, because they have no separate true reality, because they're completely false, we don't need to refute them. We don't need to be bothered by them. We don't need to come up with a complex philosophical way for understanding appearances. We don't have to argue about them. We don't have to waste time about them. So we can just accept them however other people accept them. If they're, if they're helpful and useful, you use them. And if not, you don't get upset about them. And uh, that that this quality of conceptual elaborations is the realm of uh, the false appearances. And that there uh, is a, an ultimate reality that's beyond all conceptual elaborations, beyond thought and expression. Let's see, so that's one set of verses and uh, Here's the other set of verses from the Kempo. Know that the five aggregates are not self. And that the mind belongs.
believing in the self is not the self either, then you gain certainty in this, rest in that. This is how to uh, go through these stages in a contemplative manner in your meditation practice. Since perceived objects are the confused projections of our habitual tendencies from the alia residing in the alia vijnana, the vasanas, they do not truly exist. Therefore, the mind that perceives them does not truly exist either. You gain certainty that reality is empty of this duality. Settle naturally into that without contrivance. Let go and relax. With still still with the certainty that reality is empty of this duality. So you're still holding on to that certainty. And in the Svatantrika or autonomy tradition, since there are another one or many, you'll see the different uh, logical arguments, the reasonings for emptiness here. They're, since phenomena are another one or many, they have no inherent nature. Since they don't, they're not, they neither arise, abide, nor cease. There's no production of them, nor cessation of them. Thoughts have no inherent nature. There's neither bondage nor liberation. Nirvana, samsara nor nirvana. Disturbing states of mind, defilements, neurosis, clashes, have no inherent nature. Knowing this well, rest within great emptiness. Rests in the, the understanding of the absence of all uh, true realities. Finally, in the consequence tradition, existent, non-existent, and so forth, empty, not empty, and so forth, permanent existence, and so forth, genuine reality transcends all such conceptual fabrications. So even this idea of uh, knowing well that there are none of these opposites is a conceptual elaboration. And so we have to let go of that um, way of refuting reality and just rest in, in the absence of conceptual fabrication. And so we're not, the I mean, uh, Long Chenpa's time, he did not uh, include and incorporate the Zhentong or other empty tradition. But we, in, in, this, in his presentation of the tenets of the sutra-based system, but uh, we'll see it come up in the in the more Vajrayana stages later on. So the Zhentong, when we analyze this mind, we cannot find any essence, but when we do not analyze, experiences of luminosity are unceasing. So all this before is analysis. We're analyzing our experience. And then finally in the Prasangika, we've stopped analyzing completely. We've let go of analysis. And then something happens. experiences of luminosity are unceasing. We still have this unceasing display of appearances as just mere luminosity, not even as appearances. Therefore, mind itself is luminosity and emptiness, primordial and inseparable. And this is known as luminous clarity, the Buddha nature. Because all that's left is um, the fact of Buddhahood the fact of enlightenment and there's no denying the enlightenment of the Buddha and uh, since there's there's no external world there's no internal perceiver uh, all we can say is that there's Buddha nature 
And let's see here. He says, Gentile and Madhyamaka, the imaginary and the other dependent natures of the completely false truth. So those are the two of the three natures from the Chittamatra uh, system. And in the Chittamatra system, the other dependent nature is held to have some actual truth to it, some actual genuine reality status. And the Gentile says, that's not possible. Actual genuine truth is the perfectly existent nature, which is self-aware, primordial awareness, the same as Buddha nature. Anyway, enough of that stuff. Can I ask a question or yeah, for comment, sure. whatever? Um, on these, uh, what I noticed in reading the text, on, particularly on page 119, I was going to raise it there, but it also kind of comes up on these pages a little bit, which is that particularly on this way to meditate, there's a place in the text where it talks about um, that it, it says it's talking about how to practice, but it doesn't really say anything about how to practice. And it seems like the same thing is here true too, that when you get into the Prasangika and even maybe the Shantang here, it doesn't like, it doesn't even say, you know, rest within this or do this or do this. It's just still talking about the view. So it doesn't really talk about how to practice it. I, do you understand what I'm... I do, I do, yeah. And so I'm curious whether that's because, whether that's sort of deliberate um, in that there is nothing to do and therefore there's no point in saying that anything, um, or whether it's just that they have this tendency to just focus on the view and um, not talk about meditation and path. Well, let's think about that. Let's all think about that, and uh, we'll see when we get there. What if we can, uh, if if we come to the same conclusion as uh, Cynthia has, or not? So, uh, his presentation. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yes, ma'am. One. So I just want to make sure I understood what we just went through. So, did you say that those, the different. Uh, tenets and philosophies build on each other or there's a progression? Yes. Okay, I just wanted yeah. to make sure I didn't mishear that. I mean, that's kind of the way I felt, but... Yeah, that's, yeah. That. yeah. that's a general idea. Is that yeah. Progression. Yeah. Um, and did you send send that to us? I did, yeah. Okay. If you, if you remind me, I'll I send that. Okay. All right, thank you. So on page 112, my three-part discussion focuses on the systems, the Prasangika-Madhyamaka system as analysis of whether or not a mind is confused. So instead of focusing on the, the, action, the two truths as objects of a, of a mind, here we really, in the Prasangika-Madhyamaka, we really focus on the, the perceiver, the mind as being indicative of uh, whether there is relative or ultimate truth. And this method of classifying the two truths on that basis of whether the mind is confused or not, and its method of using syllogisms to cut through conceptual elaboration, these three parts. Confusion and its absence. 
All in is the position held by Nagar, uh, Char, sorry, Chandra Kirti, who was the most excellent student of the master Nagarjuna, although he was not an actual direct student. He lived centuries later, but he was uh, in the same stream, much the same as some of you who never met Chogyam Chompa Rinpoche are his students in the same stream of his teachings, but maybe never met him who upheld the ultimate and definitive view and by his followers in the state, this is his position, in the state of meditative equipoise experienced by one who has attained the spiritual level, meaning one of the Bhumis, one of the ten Bhumis, or on the level of Buddhahood, uh, no dualistic manifestation whatsoever of the knowable can be established. So there's no basis for any type of classification or um, uh, conceptualization of there being a know knowable, uh, an object of knowledge and a knower of that object of knowledge. No dualism of object and perceiver of the object, that is what is known and what knows it, thus even the involvement of timeless awareness as the perceiver of some object has subsided. There's no active perception in these contexts. And this is during the state of meditative equipoise. Uh, poise, sorry, equipoise. I always get that messed up, mixed up. Messed up and mixed up. Um, in these contexts, all involvement of ordinary mind and mental states has been interrupted. And here he means the ordinary, ordinary mind. The realization that the true nature of phenomena is timeless awareness, which is indescribable, inconceivable, and inexpressible, is termed by the prasangikas the unconfused and authentic state of mind. And then he gives some nice quotes. Entrance into the middle way is the introduction, the, uh, sorry, is the main text by Chandra Kirti. general meaning commentary on Nagarjuna's works. And uh, then he quotes from Chandrakirti's clear words, which is a commentary on uh, Nagarjuna's root stanzas on uh, Prajna. Even in this context, even the elaborations of mind and mental states has been interrupted. The state of affairs is referred to by the idiom, the realization of ultimate truth. He calls it an idiom. It's like a common way of referred. This is commonly referred to as the realization of ultimate truth. In other words, there is no ultimate truth. There is no relative truth. It's just these are what people call it. So I'm just helping you understand that uh, what what it is that people call ultimate truth in this situation. The object in this case is the fundamentally unconditioned way of abiding the basic space of phenomena, which is pure by nature, i.e. Dharmadhatu. As for the confused state of mind, that of false perception, the prasangas posit the following. The vision of ordinary beings is distorted by the habit patterns that result from the non-recognition of awareness. Not recognizing the nature of awareness gives rise to habit patterns that proliferate into samsara, 
Those with eye diseases fixate on the perceptual distortions and hallucinations they perceive as those, as though those, these rather were actual objects. In a similar way for the six classes of beings, there are the expressions of dualistic perception, which is a state of uh, confusion that occurs through interdependent connection consists of the myriad states of pleasure and pain that manifest in their perceptions and their respective environments, experiences, and so forth, all due to the uh, uh, development of uh, habitual patterns. Alternatively, in the post-meditation experience, <clears throat> so first he described the, the meditative equipoise, now he's going to describe the post-meditation experience. It's basically these two states of, of being. In the post-meditation experience, or sometimes called subsequent attainment experience, of those who have attained spiritual levels. Didn't he talk about subsequent attainment and uh, finding rest in the nature of mind? Or was that somewhere else? Subsequent? That was somewhere else, sorry. Um, in the post-meditation experience of those who have attained the spiritual levels, there are the universes and other sensory appearances that they perceive in common with others of similar attainment. So in uh, subsequent, in, in post-meditation experience, those of the spiritual levels still experience various phenomenal displays uh, are common to other beings on similar levels. So beings on the level of the first Bhumi perceive similar things. And on the sixth Bhumi, they perceive similar things. And on the eighth Bhumi and the third Bhumi, they perceive the phenomena common to that Bhumi. Eric, I found a note on that pretty interesting. Thank you. Um, it says that for ordinary beings, all mental states are states of confusion. For those who have attained any of the spiritual levels, although meditative equipoise is free of confusion, post-meditation experience is still largely a state of confusion, albeit somewhat refined. I thought it was interesting, this idea that it's still largely a state of confusion. Yeah, I was surprised by that also. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard it uh, described as largely <laughs> confusion for those uh, who are on the spiritual levels. That's, I don't think that's a common way of describing it, but that's, that is what he says. It's interesting footnote. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's also the direct perception of solid, of sensory appearances simply manifesting to one's senses as well as inference, for example, of a fire. So these are the three ways of knowing in the post-meditation experience. Um, there's common sensory appearances, and uh, then there's direct perception of um, sensory appearances that simply manifest to one's senses. For some reason, there, he states those separately, which is not clear exactly why, but it appears that he's separating those two things. Of the universes and other sensory appearances that they perceive in common with others of similar attainment. And there's also 
direct perception of sensory appearance is simply manifesting to one's senses. It's unclear why those are separate, but they're, they do seem to be presented separately by Longship. Either of two states of mind is experienced, depending on how one evaluates sense data on the relative level. That's the prasangas assign two aspects to the relative level, which we've seen before, depending on whether the sense faculties are accurate or flawed. And we all know that accurate is a relative term here. It's a sort of consensual term. The uh, Chandrakirti's text, uh, Madhyamaka Lamkara, um, sorry, the Madhyamaka Avatara says, false perception is of two kinds, that of the facilities being either clear or flawed. Consciousness based on flawed faculties is held to be erroneous with respect to that based on excellent faculties. So we have the erroneous relative and the uh, non-erroneous or accurate relative. Yeah. Sir, ma'am. <laughs> Isn't that a reference to the non-mistaken direct valid cognition of the Santrantadas or not? Is that picking up on what, on what they kind of... It, it, uh, it, it does seem to be picking up on that nuance where in the Santrantada system there's a, a difference between being erroneous and mistaken. I'm not sure why that's so important here, though. It isn't. <laughs> here, here it's not stressed. They, they, don't, they don't make a big deal of that difference. So the prasangas classify the two levels of truth in two ways, with respect to the way in which their nature is to be understood and with respect to the way in which this understanding is put into practice. Ah, practice. The nature of the two levels, levels of truth, my six-part discussion, entails the basis first, the basis on which the two levels of truth are characterized. On what basis do we characterize them? What are their characteristics? An analysis of those characteristics. What is the definitive enumeration of the, of the truths? How many are there? derivation of the terms used to refer to the truths and the underlying logic that validates these levels of truth. First, although nothing can be truly characterized as a basis for classifying these levels of truth, from the perspective of an ordinary person's mind, which I think we're all familiar with, there is a sense of some truth that is the opposite of what is patently untrue. Yes, there used to be. <laughs> right. That's under attack right now. <laughs> the classification is made based on this sensor, according to the sense. Um, he quotes uh, Nagarjuna's 60 verses. It says the two levels of truth are assigned on the basis of the mind of an ordinary person in the world. Two levels of truth are assigned on the basis of the mind of an ordinary person. Alternatively, the mere absence of any independent nature is used as the basis for the classification. So there's these two, two ways of classifying the, the truths.
um, the uh, Madhyama Kavachara says, because neither of the two levels of truth has an independent nature. They are neither permanent entities nor nihilistic voids. So the two levels of truth are, are uh, classifications uh, or they're descriptions made from the point of view of the perceiver. They don't exist as objective independent entities or states of phenomena. The basis on which relative truth can be characterized consists of the six avenues of consciousness and the data of the objects they perceive. Very simple. Here the Madhyamakas are in agreement with the Shravaka schools and the way they define the six avenues of consciousness. They go north-south and they're one way. As for the ultimate truth, the basis on which it is characterized is held to be the basic space of phenomena, which is pure in its very essence. So we're still on the basis on which the two levels of truth are characterized. Second, as for the characteristics of the two levels of truth, A little bit funny the spaces section he has two different versions well anyway they're basically they're basically the same second as for the characteristics of these two levels relative truth is characterized by the manifestation of dualist perception and elaborations that that entails that is relative truth takes the form of obscuration by conceptual elaboration and conceptual presumption of a dualistic situation. So it's the setup beforehand, thinking that there's a dualism, and then it's the uh, conceptual elaborations that come out from that afterwards. That is relative truth takes the form of obscuration, and he gives a quote that supports that. All the phenomena of samsara meaning ordinary mind and mental states, as well as the data of objects that are perceived, sense data, are relative. Even for those who have attained spiritual levels, there remains an aspect of ordinary mind and mental states in that impure objects, such as, that is, visual forms and so forth, are perceived by the six avenues of consciousness. So this is... Uh, a little bit different way of presenting the uh, the experience of someone on a spiritual level in terms of their uh, post-meditation experience. There remains an aspect of ordinary mind and mental states instead of it being primarily confused, as, as the footnote said. But anyway, um, all of these, which are still factors to be eliminated, are included under the rubric of the relative and classified states of confusion. All of these meaning all the phenomena of samsara, ordinary mind, mental states, and their uh, objects, that, the data of the objects that are perceived. And um, so forth. 
as to what characterizes ultimate truth that is an essence of freedom from dualistic elaboration in that it cannot truly be realized by means of verbal descriptions and the like it cannot be understood by means of anything other than itself other than a direct experience of it itself cannot yield an understanding of it whereas the relative you can come to understanding through influence through words through things that point to it to the relative phenomenon and stating it in this way is not just like a you know describing this whole situation is not just sort of like a pedantic exercise but is a meditative instruction that says to work with your mind in such a way as to experience the ultimate which is what leads to liberation try to experience without any conceptual indicators try to have an experience without characteristics try to have experience without subject objects without so in that case who is trying uh, all of us hopefully that it cannot truly be realized by means of verbal descriptions and the like it cannot be understood by means of anything other than itself it is beyond concepts for the sully factors of ordinary mind and mental states subside within the basic space of phenomena it is free of all conceptual elaboration that is it is impervious to any system of tenets Varshna's Mulavanyamaka Karaka says not understood by means of anything else a state of peace unembellished by conceptual elaboration entailing no concepts without differentiation these are its characteristics sort of a, a interesting that he says these are actually characteristics when they seem like no characteristics that is such concepts as sameness and difference being the tenets of materialists are ignored pure simple well, they usually say evil pure and simple anyway however even the middle way free of conceptual elaboration is not something that can be established and we, we hear this phrase not even a middle in brief nirvana is a state of profundity meaning that it's beyond conceptual elaboration and peace meaning that all uh, habitual tendencies have subsided It is basic space, completely pure by nature, and it is the mind, free of all obscuration, that realizes this space, the timeless awareness of Buddhahood, to which this completely pure field manifests without change. But he's talking of it as a sort of dualistic subject-object experience. Interestingly, for someone who has attained the spiritual level, there is timeless awareness as the state of meditative equipoise poise so uh, uh as well as those post-meditation experiences of profound insight that are essentially identical 
to that state. So that's the subsequent attainment or attainment subsequent to uh, meditative equipoise. All of these constitute what is ultimately true. Third, as for an analysis of these two levels of truth, Nagarjuna said the Dharma taught by the Buddhist depends entirely on two levels of truth, the relative truth of the world and the truth that has ultimate meaning. The knowable that manifests in myriad ways to a confused mind that constitutes what is relative, whereas that which abides beyond any description, imagination, or expression whatsoever is classified as what is ultimate. According to uh, Chandra Kirti's text, because one sees all entities in either a false or a valid way, because there are two ways to see things, false or valid. There's the apprehension of as many entities as there are of their very essence. But it's a footnote of that statement, really anything. Whether the object of authentic perception, it is suchness. Whatever the object of authentic perception, it is suchness. False perception is said to be only relatively true. Lori. So I noticed that we never talk about suchness. No one, have, no one, last class, this class, no one brings it up. Oh, we should talk about suchness. There's a lot to say about suchness. Well, maybe that's the point. You can't really talk about it. Right? <laughs> I just had the same thought. Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. This thing, suchness, they don't say it much, but every once in a while it's there, right? Muchness. Yeah. Much, yeah. Muchness? Muchness about suchness? <laughs> Do you come up with anything? I just, oh, sorry. I was just going to, um, I'm just looking in the notes as you guys are going, but go ahead, Lori. No, I was just going to say, I had to come up with something just so that I wouldn't stop at that word every time. So I think it must be, you know how we always say that it things are not as we see them, but it doesn't mean there's nothing there. What's there is suchness and it's beyond concept, so you can't really describe it. Yeah, he, he's, been, he's been describing it uh, periodically on the last two pages. Most recently, he said on the page before at the bottom, the last paragraph in the middle, he said, in brief, nirvana is a state of profundity and peace. It is basic space, completely pure by nature, and it is the mind, free of all obscuration that realizes this space, this suchness. Remember we had a uh, reference to suchness as being uh, um, the true uncompounded phenomena in the chart of dharmas, whereas the other, the other ones were not truly uh, real dharmas. Lori. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, another Lori. I... In my mind, I was thinking suchness and emptiness were the same thing. But I guess that's not right. I think they are. Oh, they are the same thing? 
Yeah. I think they, they are, but it's like suchness in, sort of includes the luminosity aspect. That well, makes that, sense. That's the gloss that we put on it. But, <laughs> uh, and, There's an interesting moment um, where the source text is a little bit different than Long Tempa's um, paraphrasing of it. So this is on page 115 the from the source verses on sublime knowing um so long tempa you know says not understood by means of anything else a state of peace unembellished by conceptual operation entailing no concepts without differentiation these are its characteristics and in the note it says the source text says these are the characteristics of suchness so the it in that quote in Long Champa's view, is suchness. So that's kind of an interesting little. That's great. Moment. So suchness is the one and only Dharma of ultimate truth. Ultimately true Dharma. And and suchness versus emptiness. Um, such emptiness plus luminosity equals suchness. <laughs> Is what is what has been put forward. <clears throat> so that's an interesting idea. That's saying that emptiness does not include luminosity. Okay, that's a, work, a good working definition. Let, let's let's hold that in our minds and see. I didn't mean to say they're necessarily separate, but it's just that extra flavor. I think is what tends to represent suchness. At least that's what my experience has been. Emptiness seeped in luminosity. Is there a Sanskrit word for suchness? Yes, there is. Ta-ta-ta. Uh, I have a feeling. So, so the luminosity aspect, though, doesn't really come in till uh, later, right? To, not, not in the Prasangaka presentation yeah. right so 10 o'clock sorry later like 10 after 10 o'clock <laughs> <laughs> right so um yeah the madhyamaka they don't talk much about luminosity right what is that more in does that come into play in the shantong much more in the shantong yes mm -hmm. much more in the shantong yeah um, so so they, they're the ones that would say that suchness has the luminosity, whereas compared to emptiness. And uh, the pure Madhyamakas would, or the Prasanga Madhyamakas would say, uh, what is this luminosity? <laughs> if, if everything is emptiness, what is luminosity? Oh, let's see. Okay, so an analysis on 116. Um, we did the quote. <clears throat> the noble that uh, manifests in myriad ways to confuse mind constitutes what's relative, whereas that which abides beyond any description, etc., is the ultimate. And we did that quote. The analysis of what is relative is twofold. What is erroneous on the relative level manifests as objects of flawed faculties. Uh, people 
with uh, vision problems and so forth, and what is valid on the relative level manifests as objects of flawless faculties. Eyes which are good. Questionable whether uh, colorblind eyes are flawed or not. The first aspects include such things as the double image of the moon or a dream image, that is, things that manifest to the minds of ordinary beings but are well known not to be valid, like a mirage in a, in a desert. Uh, the Madhyamakas do not deny these but assign them the label what is erroneous on the relative level. Considering them to be merely conventional designations that convey meaning, the manifestation of a single moon and so forth, that is, things that manifest to the minds of ordinary beings and are well known to be valid or labeled by the proponents of this system, that which is valid on the relative level. Sir, this paragraph had me wondering about the role that um, imagery and I guess art, <laughs> spiritual art, sacred art um, plays in this type of thinking, um, like like a Buddha image, and whether that has any validity to it, or um, I don't know. There's not necessarily an answer to it, but I just thought this paragraph made me think about artistic symbols and sacred symbols and whether they have any kind of special place in all of this. Huh. It's interesting that this paragraph, <clears throat> what, is, what is it about this paragraph that brings that up? The, are, those, are those erroneous or, or not erroneous? I, yeah, I think it was, um, I mean, I'm also trying to dust off, I studied this a lot like 15 years ago, but um, you know, it was sparking some memory that at least in some traditions, like a Buddha image, for example, is not considered, um, it's neither considered a real Buddha, nor is it considered just purely a, a, a symbol, like a, or, you know, it's sort of somewhere in between, um, or yeah, like a sacred piece of art and, uh, or, or something on an altar that has some kind of sacredness to it, um, as being, having, Sort of more validity to it than that same object in a different setting. Um, so I don't know, maybe maybe now is not the time for us to explore it, but I just, something about um, this distinguishment of like the double moon is a symbol that everyone agrees is not real and valid, whereas the single moon, everyone agrees on the relative level is valid. And so I just started to think about like um, art imagery and sacred imagery and where it would fit into that divide. Uh, uh, sacred art is generally considered to be a, a certain type of nirmanakaya. And, and maybe that's what you're thinking of from the past where there's these uh, different types of nirmanakaya manifestations. There's basically uh, these three types. One is the uh, physical uh, human embodiment of a nirmanakaya. Then there's uh, artistic representations of Dharma in various forms. And then there's uh, functional uh, phenomena, such as bridges and roads and things like that are considered to be Nirmanakaya hmm. that help beings believe it or not. 
those are the bodhisattva activity, right? Yeah, bodhisattva manifestations. They they build nirmanakayas, I guess. Mm. Sort of odd thing. But uh, I've never heard them discussed as as whether those two two types of art and uh, functionally helpful phenomena are viewed as being uh, erroneous or non-erroneous yeah. relative. But isn't there also an idea that there really is no difference between the sacred and profane, that clinging to either is not... Uh, that somehow the whole world is sacred world. It's not just an image of the Buddha or... Um, no, isn't that also this, you know? Certainly a sort of a elaboration, to use a funny word, uh, of that, uh, or sort of ramification of this way of classifying the two truths. But um, still they have that way of classifying the nirmanakaya, where it's not, not everything is a nirmanakaya. Mm. So it's like... Um, cutting hairs in space or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Brent. I, I, oh, I'm sorry. No, oh, I was just, yeah, I was just going to mention that uh, I think the distinguishing factor is understanding the karma that is, um, let's say, sown by taking one action versus another. That's the distinguishing factor. So when we look at our own actions, so we understand the karma of that, right? And from there, it then allows us to better understand how are we relating and, and what are we creating, not just in this moment, but in all subsequent moments uh, and the world that we're generating. So again, coming down to we perceive the karma and there's wisdom that is then understood from however we're relating to that piece of art or, or what have you, right? Um, the the karma the karma that's generated by it or the karma that leads one to experience things in that way. Well, I mean, you could say it's a, it's an unbroken chain, you know. But at the same time, it, I would point out that it is not a permanent chain, and that uh, there is a dynamic um, thing that's going on with how you choose to uh, play with this moment right now, right? And so, in which case, it is generating karma that's then let's say you could you know there's lots of ways to try to describe it from different sort of frameworks such as it affects your your you know let's just say the the field of your mind which many seeds are planted let's just say right and different traditions call it different things if the you know i won't go into the whole because th this this becomes where you like to play right with ali vishnana and so on and so forth right um but i just wanted to point out a little bit of that yeah, that's good. That's good. It's good to play in those fields. <laughs> so we have these two aspects of to the of the relative, and uh, therefore those whose minds are confused are analogous to those who perceive a floating hair across their field of vision. Whereas those with clear vision, not even whatsoever. 
either spiritually advanced beings in states of meditative equipoise, nor Buddhas, for whom confusion has come to an end, experience in any way whatsoever that which is perceived in myriad ways by those with confused minds. So we, we uh, perceive different phenomena, different schemes, different worlds are, are perceived based on um, the, the level of confusion or not. Hey, Derek. Yeah. Do, do people know the story? Someone told me the story of um, Shoyim Trumpa and Dilgo Kensei, like meeting, I think, in the U.S. You know, Dilgo Kensei came for a visit and they were, you know, kind of chatting together and they pointed to a tree and they said, they call that a tree. Ha, 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 ha. People know that story? I think they do now. Yeah. And that just that keeps coming up to me. Someone told me that story. Before. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? Yeah. You had heard that before, Derek, haven't you? I've heard it many times. I'm sure you've said oh. it before, right? I, I, I just No, I've, I've never said it though. Is there yes, more to have. it? Is yes, there more to it or is that it? Sorry, that's it. Yeah, not that it's not enough, but <laughs> just in the they were perceiving things differently. It, it should have like another another little twist to it, like, and then suddenly the tree like fell. <laughs> and right then and there, <laughs> fell down. That's relative truth. <laughs> I do feel like this, like hearing you tell that story and um, thinking about later on when he starts to talk about language, I think ties in or, or is sparking more for me in where I was going with the art um, question. I think what all this brings up for me is like just ideas of, of symbols and things that symbolize the real thing. And if you get to a point where everything that we perceive with an ordinary mind as being a, essentially being a symbol then where does like representational art fall within that? And could one say that like a realistic painting of a mountain and the mountain itself are both symbol, like just both symbols and, and equal in their symbolness. And if that's the case, are there symbolic representations, whether they're verbal, um, or auditory or visual artistic that go beyond that in in this framework anyway and actually are more um, sort of powerful or real than other symbols or is it just it's all symbols um, it's all relative and it's all essentially erroneous well Actually, when you talk about everything being steel, then we're also in the realm of Mahamudra, right? Right. Switch channels. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. As soon as you said it, it just got, you know. <laughs> but I... Are some things more symbolic than others? That's like, are some things more real than others? Are they, so there's... there's uh, 
true symbolic relative truth and then there's false symbol re relative symbols yeah there's like the one moon in the sky which we know is where we say is real uh, on the relative then there's the double moon when i press on my eyeball and we say that's false and then there's like a photograph of a moon with like what's that and then a, perf a realistic painting of a moon what's that and then an abstract painting of a moon what's that and um I, I'm not expecting an answer. I'm just uh, exploring a thought exercise out loud, I guess. But we would all agree they're all pictures. Except, well, the real one. The, the so-called right, real right. one. Yeah. And, but we, and we have a ordinary mind has a general agreement that one thing, is, we, we call it real, and then these other things are pictures of that. So I think that would be the relative truth the the valid relative truth and and then i think what you're getting at is that on the ultimate level the moon is a symbol of a moon right but then if if a if a sacred if a buddha image is a manifestation of nirmanakaya does that especially if it's gone, through, and again, I know um, I'm, some traditions do this and some don't, I think, Buddhist traditions, but like, I think especially if a Buddha image has gone through a particular process to become a sacred object, does that have some special validity to it uh, that even the moon itself as, as some sort of reality does, like, doesn't have? Maybe, but I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, that for me, that makes so much sense because didn't before people could read and write, didn't some of those Buddhist statues, weren't those used as actual Dharma teachings? You know, or it, I mean, I've had the experience too, like looking in a, at a statue in a museum where you get zapped. By, that seems like an ultimate reality kind of zapping of through an artwork, but it's that type of a thing that Emily's talking about. That's neat. Yeah. They're all skillful means and they work better if you do a ceremony about them, particularly if you know that the ceremony was done. If you don't know that a ceremony was done, then they don't necessarily work that well. <laughs> but they're all skillful means to help you understand that everything is a symbol of itself mm -hmm. you know so a painting of a moon is a symbol of a painting of a moon instead of a symbol of a moon instead of a painting of a moon being a symbol of, a, of the so-called real moon because there is no real moon. And so the image of the thing in the sky is not a real moon either. Right. It's a symbol of a real moon. Even with this knowledge, we all react differently. Yeah. So we all have our own symbols or we all have our own moon. Flip a moon. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, let's see. We're about to talk about Hermonicaius. Look at this. Uh, I see. Um, that's the prosongicus. Where are we? Uh, the prosongicus maintain that spiritually on top of 117, spiritually advanced beings and Buddhas do not experience the usual perceptions based on confusion that we experience at the present. They experience, that's why earlier uh, he, he separated the the sense experience of those on the levels and Buddhas from sort of uh, ordinary sense experience because they're saying that uh, spiritually advanced beings see a different world. We read in the same sorts. Under the influence of an eye disease, one erroneously discerns all kinds of things, such as a hair floating across the field of vision, but someone with perfect vision sees things just as they are in this context. You should understand this to be suchness. Nirmanakai emanations manifest the result of the merit of those to be guided in the blessings of Buddhahood. This is your traditional definition of why Nirmanak, why should a Nirmanakaya manifest? Nirmanakayas are, they've exhausted all their own karmic momentum. In the moment they became a Buddha, all their karmic momentum disappeared of their own sort of, uh, uh, of their own uh, uh, um, inspiration, to, of their own sort of agency. Individual, their own individual agencies, karma disappeared when they became enlightened or Buddhas. But they manifest as a result of those to be guided, merit, the merit of those to be guided, and the blessings of Buddhahood, meaning the uh, aspirations that one made along the way. Um, it's sure benefit for beings without falling asleep oneself. <clears throat> one might send into another's dream an emanation who teaches the Dharma and so forth, performing these those functions according to the dreamer's own perceptions. This is pretty sneaky. Getting into other people's dreams? This is sort of weird. What are you guys into here? All the while, one knows that this emanation manifests to that other being as though real, arising without hindrance in the dream state, perceived by the one to be guided. It's like Marpa dreaming of uh, Saraha. Isn't he just using that as an analogy? For? Yes. That's for, that's the way I took that. For what? For um, how uh, emanations, how, how they're used, how they come about. Right, Cynthia? Isn't that what you were... It's a... Yeah. It's, I, yeah. It, um... Yeah, it seems to me that whole sentence is just illustrating it as an indication of what the enlightened being is doing when they are uh, engaging with us. I think I remember actually in one of, actually this is quite a long time ago, in one of Zangsarkense's articles, I don't know if it was tricycle or whatever, that he used this same type of statement. Um, At the end of Read the last sentence. Of the paragraph? Yeah. 
to us. In the same way, although aware of the perceptions that ordinary beings experience based on confusion and nevertheless ensuring benefit for these beings, Buddhas do not experience such perceptions based on confusion to the slightest degree. Right. So it's explaining the, the different reality that Buddhas experience as being similar to them entering into someone's dream state. They, mm-hmm. they do not partake of that dream state in any way. They right. come from the, the real world and they've entered into your dream just, to, just for the sake of teaching you. But they, they don't experience your dream state as anything real in the same way they don't experience our waking state as anything real because mm-hmm. they're, they live in their own world. Mm-hmm. There and isn't there wasn't wasn't or isn't there a, an actual understanding that spiritually advanced beings could um, transmit via dreams? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, also, non-spiritually advanced beings can do that too. Magicians and so forth can do that. That's one of the ordinary cities, right? Yeah. Yeah. The foregoing analysis is based on the characteristics of these levels of truth. The prasangikas hold that the nature of the levels themselves being emptiness is actually beyond analysis. This is, I guess, the conclusion of his analysis. Emptiness is the basic space in which things manifest. It's a little bit of an odd sentence, but commentary on awakening mind states what is relative is explained to be emptiness emptiness is nothing but what is relative it's very different than most of us think what is the ultimate is emptiness the the ultimate is emptiness here he's saying the relative is emptiness this is because just as something being produced means it is impermanent it is certain that without the one the other cannot be the case so because uh if something is impermanent, it's empty. If it's produced, it's empty. If it's empty, that means it's produced and impermanent. If an analysis were to lead one to conclude that these levels are separate from one another, it would be mistaken. So there's no way that you can actually validly uh, conclude that there are separate levels of truth. The... Uh, definitive commentary in line of intent, the characteristics of the ultimate and, and the dom- of the domain of formative patterning, which is the relative, are such that they are free of being identical or different. Those who think of them as being identical or different have embraced an unacceptable position. As forth as for their definitive enumeration, it is obvious that freedom from conceptual elaboration and the lack of such freedom are in direct opposition to one another. There can only be what is established and what can be refuted. Any third alternative can be eliminated. So the definitive number of truths is two. No arguments. Even though, didn't he just say that they they are not different? Yes, but there's still two. <laughs> From another point of view, if objects are classified on the basis of the perceivers of those objects, the imperfect perceivers, the confused mind, whereas the perfect one is the unconfused mind, there is no alternative other than these two. Is there, a, is there any kind of sense of a spectrum between the two? Like, 
I guess, or uh, from a confused mind versus unconfused mind, or is it just like you go along the spiritual path, like a hundred percent confused, and then all of a sudden there's a moment where you go to being a hundred percent not confused. I th yeah, I think you know the answer to that. What's the well, answer? actually, it, earlier in today, you were talking about the sort of odd thing that he said about the bodhisattvas being confused while they're on the boomies. It was kind of an odd thing, because normally you think of that as being the, the tipping point, right, when you get onto the boomies. But he, there was something you were saying earlier about that was sort of weird about what he was saying, that there was a lot of, there was still confusion even on the boomies. Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. There, there's definitely a spectrum. We're all on the spectrum. Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the answer, but it was—it's a little confusing, actually. Oh, I don't know about you guys. Uh, let's see. That is the phenomenon of samsara, the objects of a state of confusion, whereas the true nature of phenomena is unconfused state. And so, these two levels can be assigned on the basis of the minds involved. Oh, hey, Derek. Oh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, this seems to go back to uh, page 114, where, where he describes, he has, the, in the first point, the two levels of truth are assigned on the basis of the mind of an ordinary person in the world. And the other part, because neither of the two levels of truth has an independent nature, they're two sides of the same coin. So he's just, it sounds like he's expanding on the, on those two premises. It does. No? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think so. It's as for the derivation of the terms, which we saw before, but this, for some reason, is slightly different derivation. Uh, some... Samvriti Satya comes from uh, Sam, authentic, and Vriti means obscuration, so uh, very, uh, very obscured. And uh, Satya means truth. It's used here in the sense that so long as one does not investigate something, it has a semblance of validity. <laughs> so much for truth. <laughs> As for the ultimate truth in Sanskrit, this is the Paramahartha Satya, sacred, and Arta carries the sense of meaning, so all that is sacred. Satya means truth, used here to indicate that which remains unassailable when investigated. So that first definition of truth as being uh, a semblance of validity is, a is an explanation of uh, Sampriti Satya, not just Satya. Sixth, these levels of truth can be validated by means of logic. Is logic ultimately true or relatively true? Relative. It is logical that the ultimate level, the basic space of phenomena, as the subject under discussion is freedom from conceptual elaboration because it is not the province of ordinary consciousness which entails conceptual frameworks. Furthermore, it is realized through timeless awareness in a way that involves no such elaboration. It is logical that the relative truths, level, sorry, objects in the phenomenal world as the subject under discussion entails conceptual elaboration. 
Because these objects are the province of ordinary consciousness, which does entail conceptual frameworks. The reverse statement is also necessarily the case that ordinary consciousness, which entails such frameworks, uh, i.e. conceptual frameworks, and its objects constitute the relative level, and therefore the underlying basis of what is characterized is ultimately real, is validated through awareness of its characteristics. Whereas the underlying basis of what is characterized as relatively real is validated through more conventional consciousness that fixates on both characteristics and what is characterized. I had marked that line as one for clarification. Uh, what does the footnote say? Anything helpful? I, well, I looked at it, but I don't think so. Oh, hold on. I also had a question mark here. and the Here's the footnote. The implication is that, this is 3.30, right? Only timeless awareness can fully appreciate and validate ultimate truth. I'm fine with that statement, but what I don't understand is the, the I, um, I guess the first part of this is saying the ultimately real is validated through awareness of its characteristics. What, um, That's an odd sentence. That one it just threw me because I thought normally with ultimate, we are moving away from characteristics altogether. Well, he told us earlier the characteristics of the uh, suchness of Dharmadatya. He listened. Right. So, he doesn't seem to have a problem with the ultimate having characteristics. Yeah, I guess in this context, that's considered okay. It's a little bit odd, I think, as well. But by the end of that paragraph, my mind was just twisted. <laughs> just... Yeah, that sentence. The, uh, you know, the only difference is that the, the ultimate is validated through awareness of its characteristics, whereas the relative is validated through more conventional through conventional consciousness fixating on both characteristics and what is characterized so the difference is the fact that in the ultimate there is nothing characterized because there's no thing that seems to be the, the logical conclusion okay really. that, that helps and he uses the word awareness through validated through awareness so i guess yeah. it means timeless awareness so actually, it's just really making the distinction between the mind of the perceiver again, or the so-called, whatever, you do. maybe you can't call it perceiver, but it's the same thing you've been talking about, the theme overall, which is that it's not based on the objects, but it's based on the mind, mind that makes the difference. Yeah. And perhaps, versus relative. And perhaps, I mean, perhaps direct idea of direct experience of the ultimate versus a sort of cloudy fixation and attempt to characterize that is the relative maybe and that it's a concept yeah 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 it's to me there's not a lot of logic here it's kind of just restating you know it's not like we're going from this, then this is so, and that is so. It's just defining what he's already defined. In some it ways. seems incredibly repetitive. 
It's yeah. like I'll do the same thing like four times. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't like to say it, so I turned the recording off when I said that. But anyway, putting this understanding into practice, that's a novel idea. Uh, let's see. My discussion now turns to the method of putting this understanding into practice. Having aroused the awakening mind, does that mean waking up? Like having roused from sleep, oneself from sleep, Brent? Is that what that means? Anybody? Having I was, I, my interpretation of that was that it, it was saying awakening as being in the process, like developing bodhicitta, that you're not all the way there yet. Because if you say awakened mind, then you're already Buddha. So my take on that was that it was um, having a, since we are in the process on the path, we're arousing awakening mind that we're not there yet. That's why that was my take. So the preparatory phase for practice is when it comes to a decision on the basis of the view that no phenomena can be established to exist in anyone's way whatsoever. So those of you that have come to this decision, raise your hands. Okay, the rest of you need to, to, to work on that decision before you can practice. Those of us that raised our hands can then practice, which is the cultivation of a mind that is free from the proliferation and resolution of, con of concepts. And that's the entire practice. I don't know why you said there was no practice here, Cynthia. It's very clear. Actually, yeah, I, I, sh I shouldn't have said it quite the way I did. I had What I had marked was actually two paragraphs down at the bottom of uh, underneath the quotes. And actually, it was really just I was remarking on the fact that the lines where it says, they meditate intensively, intensively on the significance of this condition, the profound state that has no frame of reference. And then he says, having rested in that state for as long as one can, one performs the dedication. Like, it's over. <laughs> That's it. That's right. You, you rest in the state for as long as you can. How long can you do it? Oh, yeah, blink. No, um, just, but I also like the intensively part. That was also kind of interesting. You have to rest intensively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so rest. So at the beginning, we had to wake up. We had to cultivate the awakening mind. We arouse our awakening mind from sleep, and now we're resting at the end. Once we've cultivated that, we rest. Intensively rest. This is the way to incorporate the ultimate level of truth into our spiritual practice. And uh, the way to incorporate the relative truth is to do so during the post-meditation phase. Having arisen from meditative equipoise, one gathers merit by understanding all phenomena from the point of view of the eight analogies concerning illusoriness. So you go about doing good, good, you know, helpful things, random acts of kindness. And yeah, this is just absolute and relative bodhicitta. There you practice. go. Thus, with the integration of meditative equipoise and the post-meditation phase of sublime knowing and skillful means and of the development of one's merit and experience of timeless awareness, one will finally attain the two sacred kayas of Buddhahood, the Dharmakaya and the Rupakaya. And he quotes Nagarjuna's precious garland of how these two come about. 
Rupakaya, the Buddhas, comes about from the gathering of merit. As for the Dharmakaya, it is born of the deepening of the majestic experience of timeless awareness. Uh, skipping the next paragraph, that is the ground of aspect of Madhyamaka is assumed within the two levels of truth. The path aspects within twofold spiritual development, which is the two accumulations of merit and wisdom, and the fruition aspect within the two kayas of the Dharmakaya and the Rupakaya. Finally, we come to our last subject for this evening, which is cutting through conceptual elaboration with syllogisms. If you're going to cut through something, you need a very sharp object to cut through them. And there's nothing sharper than a good syllogism. It's hard to find a good syllogism. Hard, good syllogisms are hard to find, especially these days. During the pandemic, Prasankas use syllogisms to cut through conceptual elaboration. They employ the five arguments of formal logic that we saw in the Swatantrika system which were discussed previously, to determine that all phenomena lack independent nature. However, unlike the Swatantrikas, the Prasankas do not deny relative truth and establish it to be false, nor do they refute conceptual elaboration concerning the ultimate level and establish the later, sorry, latter to be an absence of such elaboration. We'll come back to this sense. Rather, although they directly refute anything on which the mind fixates, they do not establish anything whatsoever and instead. In this way, they invalidate any incorrect opinion that an opponent might put forth. Thus, to cut through conceptual elaboration, the prasangas rely solely on syllogisms that point out the internal uh, contradictions of any assertion involving such elaboration. And uh, then he goes through the refutation of production which was one of the five arguments. He doesn't really cite, say, doesn't lead into it and say this is one of them, but when you go back to the Swatantra, because this was one, and he goes through these five and uh, shows how they're used in the Prasanka system as a, uh, a way of revealing absurd conclusions. And uh, the nuance is that one sentence where he says, he basically says the Swatantrikas deny relative truth, even though they're famous for making autonomous syllogisms where they accept the basis of uh, discussion, the object, the subject of the syllogism as a valid subject to be discussed between two parties. Uh, they then go about denying relative truth according to the Prasangika. They consider relative truth to be illusory. And the Prasangas don't do that. They don't have time. They just don't have enough beer or time to do that. And, uh, nor, do they ref nor do they refute conceptual elaboration concerning the ultimate level and establish the later to, latter to be an absence of such elaboration. So um, the Swatantrikas basically come to conclusions. They come to the conclusion that the relative is false and that the ultimate is true. Even though he just went through this long-winded description of basically the same way of understanding the two truths, he's now uh, saying something that seems to be very different, which is that in the Prasanka, um, 
there's no establishment of ultimate truth as an absence of elaboration because there's no establishment of the relative truth. There's no positive uh, result of all the arguments of all the syllogisms. There's no implicative negation. And then to summarize, starting on page after he goes through the, the uh, different types of production, we get a few few pages of sort of conclusion, which are mostly quotations, but on 123, let's see. It says towards the bottom, having refuted all such belief systems through syllogistic reasoning, the Prasangas do not propose their own set of tenets based on conceptual elaboration. And he gives some quotes supporting that. And the implication is that the Swatantrakas do. And then on the bottom of 124, we have an objection, a, a very reasonable response that says, how then do the Prasangas deal with classifications like the two levels of truth that he just went through for many pages? They consider such classifications to be simply conventions observed by ordinary people. So he just like dished us all having spent so much time and effort trying to understand this presentation of two levels of truth. They say, you're just, this is conceptual elaboration, you guys, and you proved yourself to be ordinary people. But the Prasanga system itself does not seize on them as truly existent. And he gives some quotes to support that, and then says, thus, because the phenomena of the world of appearance and possibilities whether samsara and nirvana or nirvana do not exist as real entities and that their nature is that of an illusion. The prasangas do not refute the fact that they do manifest in the world, merely appearing to produce and to cease and so forth. The implication is that the swatantrakas uh, do actively refute production and so forth, the, the phenomena that are produced. Could I ask one question that relates to this back, which I think relates to also what you pointed out on 120. So on one hand, they don't refute relative truth, but the line where they say they use syllogisms to point out the internal contradictions of any assertions involving elaboration. So what's the difference between not refuting relative truth, but you are they are sort of undermining uh, and showing those absurdities and all of those things. That's not sort of refuting on some level? It's refuting without proposing. It's refuting without putting anything out there. Right, I get that, but it seems like in one place he's saying they don't refute it, and in another case he's acknowledging that they do, Right. Oh, I, I think it was relative truth they don't refute. Right. It says they don't refute relative to cut through its conceptual elaboration. When they're talking about conceptual elaboration, I was assuming that's also talking about relative truth. Do not deny relative truth and establish it to be false, nor do they refute conceptual elaboration concerning the ultimate level. Oh, but they might refute conceptual elaboration of the relative level, which I, it's the last the last sentence of that paragraph that I'm confused by compared to that other sentence. 
I think the implication is that the Swatantrikas uh, come to a conclusion of what ultimate truth is by, by refuting conceptual elaboration. Okay, because it doesn't seem like he's talking about the implications. It seems like he's just talking about the refutation, but I'll... I'll... Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's maybe not the clearest presentation of the Prasanguka that we've ever seen. <laughs> but it's the starting point, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of put forward all the relative, uh, relevant rather, uh, topics and information. I think the idea is, uh, it's helpful to study many different versions of these. Oh yeah. No, it's great. It's great stuff. It's just, and it may be that there's something lost in translation. Who knows? That is possible too. If, given who we're talking about, I, I, I'm not going to blame it on him yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, yeah. Interesting range of, uh, of subtlety and sometimes questionable, but anyway, uh, Henrietta. Yeah. I, I, I just wanted to, there was another Conf bit of confusion for me in that, you know, he talks in that first under syllogisms, that first uh, second line, he says the f talks about the five arguments. So I was looking for five arguments, but he's really just presents the Vajra slivers, the four arguments of the Vajra slivers. He doesn't present the whole five arguments there. I kept looking, but... <laughs> I think he's got four of them at least. That's the four Vajra slivers arguments. Well, he does basically. That's all oh. just under that one. Oh, argument. sorry. Yeah, he's doing the yes something that, 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 that that's true. That's true. I kept looking for number five, and then I realized, oh, these are just right one argument. The Vajra slivers in, right. divided into four. You know four slivers <laughs> about causes. He right. doesn't go into the Right, he doesn't people. go into all the rest, yes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it wasn't his intention to for whatever. Yeah, it was a little confusing to me because I was trying to, trying to follow. <laughs> well, I think that concludes our exploration of uh, Longchenpa's presentation of the uh, philosophical systems, which is what the name of the book is, but really the rest of it is is more about uh, the paths. And so there's one section on the philosophical systems, and uh, and we can go onward into the paths of the cause-based approaches. And I can't remember if we're going to make it to mantra or not this semester. It would be fun if we made it to the Vajrayana section. We'll see. I can't remember the. the I, don't, I don't think so, but I'm. Yeah. Oh, actually, no. Maybe I don't remember. I don't. Sure. Look at the syllabus and where we are in it. <laughs> well, tomorrow it's going to rain, right? Yeah. And then. What they say. Go back to normal fall. Just in New York. I'm just not, not out west. Yeah, Brock. Brock is probably uh, out shoveling right now. <laughs> Are you getting tired of summer? <laughs>
So uh, maybe we should dedicate our marriage, such as it is. I this married male obtain omniscience may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, man, and free eye of all beings, from the confidence of the golden son of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Mary Beth, what is your picture? Is that a dragon? Frog. A frog? Is it a frog? Frog. The background is very similar. It's a little hard to make. It looks like a dragon, too. It's in my garden. Yeah, it's great. It's very it's sweet. sweet. Yeah. Oh, it looks like a toad type of thing. Yeah, okay, a toad. I get them confused. Yeah. It's well camouflaged. <laughs> it it jumped, but I, I can't show you that video, but it, it jumped. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm giving you the butterfly now, um, which actually grew in my, on my roof garden. That must be a symbol of something, right? The butterfly. Um, uh, it's just grew out of it from a, they 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 like to, the caterpillars like to eat parsley and rue. So my parsley and rue plants get completely decimated. They eat them all up completely, and then they go into a chrysalis phase, and then they come out like this. It probably tastes really good. I haven't tried that, but the birds might like it. That uh, some some animal might like it. You should try eating them. <laughs> what does the chrysalis look like? Very dull, kind of more like the toad color. It's very, very um, brown and nondescript. Yeah, I think that some of them are much more beautiful, or be more, um, sorry, more like gold and other things. I think the, the monarchs maybe are the ones that are really elaborate, but these things are like, they look like dirt, you know, you would never notice that they were um, going to produce something like this. Mm -hmm. Right. Am I right that in the chrysalis phase, it basically breaks down to the DNA level and then reconstructs? I think that's what happens. Could like, be. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't know all that much about it. It's just been something that over the last couple of years, it's been arising more and more, which is good. They turn into jelly. They totally yeah. compose, right? Yeah, that's my, like, down to, I mean, talk about partless particles. It's like... <laughs> Like caterpillar mush. They actually make a very good jam out of it. You should try it. Chrysalis jam. Why do you keep wanting to eat all this? <laughs> I, I must be hungry. Maybe he didn't have dinner before class, right? <laughs> well, you didn't talk about eating the toad, so I can't. <laughs> but isn't the, the chrysalis is the cocoon. You're talking about the larvae, the caterpillar, right? The caterpillar like go, turns into the chrysalis, right? Right. Yes. What happens inside yes. is it basically breaks down to the point where it's just like like a DNA jam and then it reconstitutes into like a new animal. Um, yeah. It's the same, right. same animal. Right, but the yeah, chrysalis stage is the cocoon made of silk right and that's where yeah 
and the DNA soup is inside. Pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Barbara's had enough. She's. <laughs> Why? This is high science. <laughs> we'll have to argue about these conceptual elaborations next. <laughs> yeah. They very, they very much are conceptual elaborations. <laughs> what, do, what do you call this versus that? You know, and the, right, there you go. Where's the dividing line between the caterpillar and its cocoon? Right. Instead of sprouts, we can talk about caterpillar and all that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Is the caterpillar and the butterfly actually the same? Uh, oh, wow. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> caused by the caterpillar? Is it? And is the is the is the caterpillar a cause of the? Is the butterfly a result of it? Wow. Are they other? They're 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 totally different things, right? Speak, right. But speaking of that, do, do they say? I mean, in that whole business about fire and smoke, do they say that smoke comes from fire or not? No. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, smoke comes. That was the idea. Was that smoke comes from fire? And uh, and yet it's other. It's other than fire, but it comes from fire. Whereas. Uh, uh, smoke does not come from uh, light. What was it? Uh, there was some, yeah. Dark, a dark, otherwise, a dark, uh, dark. darkness could result from fire. Or flame. Or flame, darkness could cause. Or, or, or the reverse, yeah. Right, right, right. I have a whole chart of it I worked out as I was reading. Uh, wow. Right. Well, it's very interesting in terms of these caterpillars, though, that each different type of butterfly feeds, the caterpillar feeds on a different type of plant mm -hmm. and they're not interchangeable. Like um, for example, most people know about the monarchs that they need milkweed and that's what they feed on and that's what they need. Whereas these guys, the black, whatever that thing was, swallowtail, I can't remember the name of it now. They only eat parsley and rue and maybe another plant or so. They don't care about milkweed. They only like, you know, so it's, it's like they're, you know, talk about bizarre, you know, causes and conditions and things. They're very specific. Right, right. I think we should do a taste test. <laughs> Some of those things, actually, the reason for the milkweed, I think, is because it is um, toxic for the predators. Mm. So we might want to think about that before we do the taste test. That's right. The, the, the monarch caterpillars eat, eat the milkweed because it is toxic, but they they have the ability to uh, store that toxin so that um, it, it doesn't harm them, but it, it uh, helps ward off predators. Right. And then doesn't the monarch know how to get to this place in Mexico that <laughs> even though it's been several oh, generations, amazing. Yeah. that mm -hmm. part that really right. blows my mind. So several amazing. generations away. They all go to the same place in Mexico, right? Yeah, even though like it's been like it's like the great grandchildren of the last group that were there. Right. right. And so it's one of the longest the, migrations, it, I think, right? Yeah, it's coded in there. So, yeah, in, talk about whatever that what continuity from one life to the next. That's an interesting, yeah. bizarre example of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think we should take these examples and go back to that section about what. The, all the syllogisms and let's write a new book on it, right? With all the new examples. <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, it's just 
they're good mind tests or something. Yeah. Wow. Go to it. It's, just, oh. it's too much fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.